market to overseas competition over the last five years and still paid its CEO more than $40 million. It would be one thing if the business were stuck in a contract and had to pay this out even after firing the guy. But these people were paid these insane amounts as bonuses for good work well done. How crazy is that? The primary fault does not lie with the CEO. He is who he is. The main problem is with the boards of directors, who are paid principally to put the right guy in the top position and compensate him or her in a way that encourages the CEO to act in the best interests of the owners. Boards have had a hard time doing that lately. Many have long ago forgotten who the owners are. Perhaps that's why they call us shareholders as opposed to owners, to keep from reminding us that we actually own the business. We're not going to buy any business if we don't like the management enough. Simple as that. And one of the main reasons to dislike management is if they're getting overpaid. One key way management gets overpaid, for example, is with stock options. Stock options don't cost the manager anything. They're an award from the business, giving the manager the right to buy company stock at a set price at some time in the future. The idea in awarding stock options is to incentivize the manager to drive up the stock price to make the options worth something. Let's take an example. Say I want to hire Mr. Slick to be my CEO, and the stock price is at $30 a share. I give Slick an option to buy 1 million shares of the business at $30. If he can get the stock to go up to $40, he'll make $10 million. He has no downside risk since he didn't pay anything for the options. Those options will, of course, also come with a nice fat paycheck, since he can't be certain he can make the stock go up, other things in the world being influential. Nice deal especially since Slick knows that 4% inflation might move the stock up to $40 in seven years if he does nothing but maintain the status quo. Sweet. Except for the owners, us. We get screwed. A million-share piece of our pie went to this guy for nothing. Our return means nothing if it only keeps pace with inflation. The worst part of the options craziness taking place in unscrupulous companies is that, until recently, this expense to the owners wasn't even called an expense. The CEOs got the options, and the business didn't have to take a hit to the bottom line. Only the owners took the hit, in the form of a loss of a piece of what they owned. But if that isn't a loss, what is? As of this writing... Congress is looking at passing a law that forces businesses to expense option grants so the money isn't just slipped out of the back pocket of the owners without the business reporting it as an expense. The reason many businesses don't want to report this dilution as an expense is that it'll make their short-term earnings look bad compared with the year before, when they didn't have to take that expense. They complain to their congressman who owes them for donating money to his campaign, the CEOs wave checks, and, son of a gun, the law gets hung up. Here's what Mr. Buffett has to say about that. The accomplices in perpetuating this absurdity have been many members of Congress who have defied the arguments put forth by all big four auditors, all members of the Financial Accounting Standards Board, and virtually all investment professionals. A standard for expensing options is supposed to have been adopted by all companies by 2006. This new standard may eliminate one of the biggest scams perpetrated by boards and CEOs against unsuspecting and unwatchful owners. Note, Advanced Rule Number 1 Analysis A business's annual report is required to disclose options deals to owners. Look in the index to the financial statements under the heading Notes to the Consolidated Financial Statements. Simply scroll down to near the end of the notes and you'll find a section called Stock Options. That's where you can read about how a business structures its options.
This level of evaluating a business is more for advanced rule number one investors, however. As a beginner, don't feel as if you need to understand options and how they should be structured within a company. At a basic level, check to see if the business structures a logical and appropriate strike price, the fixed price at which a company official who owns options can buy the stock during a set period. It should reflect success for owners. And second, see if the company enforces a ban on the CEO quickly disposing of any shares purchased through options, thereby helping to ensure that the CEO sees the world as a long-term owner. Your goal in conducting this type of analysis is to filter out any business being run by a bunch of mercenaries who are in it for the quick buck. So what does a rule number one investor make of all this when looking for a wonderful business that's, by definition, run by a wonderful CEO? Read the annual reports. Ask yourself, is the CEO being compensated as an owner or as a mercenary? If he's being compensated within a reasonable salary and perks, and you can figure out reasonable as well as I can, and has a stock or option position in the business that lets him make a reasonable amount of money when we do, then fine. If it's otherwise, why own something that can bite you when you aren't looking? By the way, to see how things should work, check out the way Whole Foods is set up for executive pay all the way down to its cashiers, and you'll see what's possible if the guys on top aren't in it solely for the money. Appearance versus Reality As I've already mentioned, a great way to spot a shady management team and or CEO is to find a gaping disconnect between the hardcore numbers, specifically the Big Five, and what the CEO is peddling about the state and fate of the company. You can trust numbers more than what issues from the mouth of an overpaid company executive. Note Danger Zone The red flags exist if you search for them, and it's not too difficult to distinguish between integrity and fluff. If you know that a company had a bad year, evidenced in its numbers and how much stakeholders lost, check out what the CEO had to say about it in his annual letter to shareholders. If he doesn't admit to mistakes and not only highlights the challenges ahead, but explains what he intends to do about them, you're staring at a questionable jockey who doesn't know how to ride the horse. Don't get on that horse with him. In doing my homework for this book and searching for illuminating examples of poorly managed companies, I came across an article by Michael Brush titled The Five Most Outrageously Overpaid CEOs, posted August 24, 2005, at www.moneycentral.msn.com, which covered five CEOs who took huge paydays while the business owners suffered. Curious, I checked to see what these CEOs wrote in their letters to shareholders while they were losing money hand over fist. Were there any signs? Did their letters reflect what was going on? I couldn't possibly give you better examples of what to watch out for when you're evaluating CEOs. If your CEO writes like these guys, you'd best know the business and watch it like a hawk because these guys are experts at hiding the truth from the owners. I do, however, have a better feeling about one of these guys than the article suggests, as you'll see. I'll summarize here what I learned but I encourage you to check out these letters yourself so you know what I'm talking about. All you have to do is log on to each company's website and access its annual reports. They all post annual reports, usually under Investor Relations. Siena, C-I-E-N Siena, a company that specializes in fiber-optic communication networks, is run by Gary Smith, who took more than $41 million in pay while his shareholders lost more than two-thirds of their book value per share and more than 90% of their stock value from 2001 to 2004. 
Look up Siena's annual reports online and read Mr. Smith's letters. Remember that the ideal CEO writes Buffett style, taking blame for the failures of the business and telling the owners what they need to know to evaluate his performance and the future of the business. At the end of 2002, a year during which Siena lost $1.5 billion, Mr. Smith's letter didn't get around to mentioning the apocalyptic loss. If you were an owner of Siena, wouldn't you expect your manager at least to note that you lost a few bucks and tell you what went wrong? Instead, Mr. Smith tells the owners how well he set the business up for success to come in the following year. In the next year, 2003, sales went down, Siena lost another $386 million, and another 20% of owner's equity disappeared, which means either Mr. Smith was not able to judge how his business was doing at the end of 2002, or he didn't want to tell the owners the truth. Since his CEO letter wasn't written until well into the 2003 fiscal year, you can make your own judgment. Read these letters. This is the kind of it's-all-good-from-here-on-out language to watch out for. If the business is having trouble, the CEO had better spell out what happened, take responsibility, and tell you how he's going to fix it, just like anyone who works for you who screws up the job. No big secret here, is there? If we're looking for honest CEOs who know they're working for us, we'd better see something of that in their letters to us over the years. If we don't see it, we don't invest, because guys who won't tell you the truth can easily be running the next Enron and WorldCom disasters, either because they're liars or because they're clueless. Either way, we're out of there. Sanmina SCI S-A-N-M This company provides electronics manufacturing services. Its CEO, Yuri Sola, likes to use phrases like met the ongoing challenge, unyielding in its commitment, continue to optimize, made significant progress, our customer-focused strategy, and we are excited about the future. This type of letter gives me the creeps. Sanmina SCI is growing shareholder value at about 2% a year, about as good as your savings account. Return on capital, ROIC, is minus 12% for five years. They haven't made any money since 2001. Wouldn't you think he'd mention that things haven't been going so well? It's not as if the owners didn't notice the market price of the stock dropped from $60 to $5 since 2001. Sheesh! Seems like the owners might expect some kind of explanation other than it's been... The worst technology downturn in history. Uh, Yuri, the last two years have been pretty good for other tech companies. Maybe you should start taking some responsibility instead of blaming the market. But instead, you took home a nice $19 million bonus. Why you accepted that compensation should be in the letter, too. Sun Microsystems, S-U-N-W. Sun is run by its founder, Scott McNeely. To his credit, his letters reflect more of the owner point of view than that of a politician running a business. Sun's price per share drop from $65 to $4, and its loss of about one-third of the equity since 2001 was a shock to the owners. Of course, Mr. McNeely is a very big owner himself, so he was pretty shocked too, no doubt. Here's what I like. McNeely admits in one of his letters that he didn't do what he hoped to do and Sun lost money. He goes on to tell the owners about a big negative issue, the perception in the market that Sun systems are too costly. Then he explains what he's doing to fix that. And he emphasizes he won't tolerate unethical business behavior. While anyone can write that, I get the feeling that Scott means it. All in all, this is a much better letter to the owners than we usually see in struggling businesses. Read Scott's 2002-2004 to 2004 letters to get an idea of how a good, 
honest, owner-oriented CEO writes when things are going bad. Albertsons, ABS. Albertsons, a supermarket chain, is managed by Larry Johnston. Earnings per share haven't grown at all, zero in ten years. Equity growth has been flat for five years. This company feels like it's treading water about fifteen miles from shore with no life preserver. It might be getting ready to just sink quietly under. That bleak assessment comes just from looking at the numbers. However, reading Mr. Johnston's letters to the owners, letters that are supposed to let the owners know how it's going with their money, you get the distinct impression that Mr. Johnston, far from treading water, is sitting in the cockpit of a fifty-foot racing boat, ready to take on the world. He uses phrases like "in the midst of an exciting transformation," "passion to win." And new energy. If 2002 was one of the most demanding years in business history, when some companies stumbled, most struggled, and more than a few failed, Mr. Johnston was proud to lead a solid business performance and one of the largest restructurings in retailing history. One of the tricks of the CEO letter-writing trade that I see repeatedly is listing facts that prove what a great job the CEO did last year. Hey guys, the facts are right there on the ROIC, sales, EPS, equity, and cash lines in black and white. We're not stupid anymore. So in the future, don't bother telling us about how the average shopping basket size improved. Or how customer service scores improved steadily, or how in Phoenix total market share accelerated between 10% and 130%. If you had a bad year and you think you're going to have another one, just tell us straight up. We own the business you run, okay? Start treating us with a little respect. Oh, and while you're at it, Larry. Would you mind putting in the next letter how your leadership was worth seventy-six million dollars while the business lost forty percent of its value? Bristol Myers Squibb, BMY. Peter Dolan manages this big pharmaceutical company. Since he took over in two thousand one, the market price for BMY has dropped by fifty percent, and yet he took home forty-one million dollars. He earned that in part by doing a two billion dollar deal with Imclone for a drug that the FDA turned down just a couple of months later. Whoops! There goes two bill. Guess that's worth a bonus. Oh, and then in the fall of 2004, he decided he'd better have the company change its previously reported financials to reflect reality a little better. Always love to see a business I own restate its numbers, don't you? Under Dolan's leadership, sales have gone nowhere for four years. EPS has been flat for four years. Debt has grown by over six hundred percent in the last four years. Equity growth, the best indicator of growth in long-term value, has averaged three percent per year for the last four years. And here we go again with the CEO's hype phrases. In addition to delivering solid financial performance, we met other key objectives. And then he goes on to hype the new products. That's it. That's all the owners get. No apology about taking forty-one million dollars of their money for doing what? The conclusion. With the exception of Scott McNeely, these CEOs have failed miserably in their fiduciary responsibility to the owners of the business to tell them the truth about what's going on, and that, for a rule number one investor, is enough to keep us from getting involved. The guy or gal who runs things is critical. You don't get a great company without a great CEO. Don't fall for CEO jargon and hype phrases. The numbers don't lie, and if a CEO isn't explaining what happened candidly in his letter to the owners, how can you trust him? 
And if you can't trust him, you can't buy that business. First, be sure you're right. Now that we've learned how to spot a wonderful company from a financial and management standpoint, we're at the point where we must decide if it's really a business we want to own. I've already mentioned in previous chapters how you must consider your core values when you decide to buy a business. It's an important part of rule number one investing, and it'll ultimately help you narrow down your choices when it comes to buying a few choice businesses. It's up to you to make sure the company is trying to do what you want it to do. If you wouldn't change its focus, fine. But if you would, then strictly from your perspective, the company isn't owner-oriented, and you shouldn't invest in it. When I was a little kid, Davy Crockett was my hero. For the young folks unfamiliar with this show, Davy Crockett was a hit television show that ran in the mid-1950s. I was glued to our black-and-white TV set. In every single episode, Davy would remind us that his motto was, First be sure you're right, and then go ahead. Well, as a rule number one investor, I can appreciate the Davy Crockett motto. If I'm not sure, I don't do nothing. Just sit in cash until I can find one I'm sure about. If, on the other hand, I think this business is truly wonderful, then I'll go ahead to the final M, margin of safety. Chapter 8. Demand a Margin of Safety A cynic is someone who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. Oscar Wilde, 1854-1900 We're already up to the fourth M, Margin of Safety, MOS. It's what defines our attractive price, and as you'll see in this chapter, it begins by first getting a correct sticker price on a given business. We'll be calculating sticker prices in the next chapter. Here, I want you to focus solely on the concept of a margin of safety, which is critical to rule number one and all too often forgotten. The Craziness of EMT and the Markets Earlier in this book, I mentioned Professor Burton Malkiel. His work at Princeton University was seminal in the Efficient Market Theory, or EMT, which states that stocks are priced according to value. In 1972, he proved to the satisfaction of the Ivy League intellectual community that even Warren Buffett could not get higher returns on his investing than a monkey randomly picking stocks. Probably this came as a significant surprise to Mr. Buffett. Prior to the release of Malkiel's book, Mr. Buffett had been under the impression his rate of return for the previous 16 years of 29% per year was due to the superior investing strategy taught by his mentor, Benjamin Graham, and based on the idea that the stock market occasionally misprices stocks. In fact, Professor Malkiel argues that Mr. Buffett's success was simply a statistical aberration akin to a long streak of coin tosses coming up heads. Unusual, but certainly to be expected in any large statistical sample of a random system. As I pointed out in the first chapter, Malkiel's book on Efficient Market Theory, A Random Walk Down Wall Street, is still sold today. In fact, it's in its eighth edition and unrepentant in its support of EMT. But take a look at what Professor Malkiel said during an interview with Jeff Colvin, a co-anchor for Wall Street Week with Fortune, a financial news analysis television program. The interview was broadcast on June 20, 2003. Burton Malkiel I'm the guy who said that a blindfolded chimpanzee throwing darts at the stock pages could select stocks as well as the experts. Colvin Why is it so? Why is it that nobody can reliably, consistently beat the market? Malkiel I think there are a couple of reasons. One, our markets are really, for the most part, extraordinarily efficient. When information arises about a particular company or about the economy, people pounce on that information right away, so that by the time you and I hear the news, it's already reflected in the price. Colvin Now, 
A lot of people have said that the great bubble of the late 90s, when stocks went sky-high for no identifiable reason, and then in early 2000 plunged for no identifiable reason, shows that the efficient market's idea is bunk. Malkiel. In the long term, I think that they are generally efficient, though I'll admit they do go crazy from time to time. For the entire interview, go to http colon double slash www.pbs.org slash WSW slash TV program slash Malkiel underscore interview dot HTML. So this is what the professor of efficient market theory says. In the long term, I think that they are generally efficient, though I'll admit they do go crazy from time to time. And here is what Ben Graham said about 50 years earlier. In the short run, the stock market is a voting machine, but in the long run, it's a weighing machine. This is Warren Buffett. The basic ideas of investing are to look at stocks as businesses, use market fluctuations to your advantage, and seek a margin of safety. That's what Ben Graham taught us. A hundred years from now, they will still be the cornerstones of investing. In other words, after only 30 years of being dead wrong and while still not admitting it like a man, Professor Malkiel is now spouting the exact philosophy of investing that Mr. Buffett and Mr. Graham have been using successfully for 80 years. The only difference is that Mr. Malkiel continues to maintain that no one can successfully use the fact that they do go crazy from time to time to make money. Mr. Buffett... Mr. Graham and thousands of other successful investors do use these crazy times when the market is mispricing stocks as an opportunity to make a lot of money. And so will we. Note. The analogy. One afternoon at a prestigious university, an economics professor who believes stocks are always priced correctly is walking down a path with a graduate student when they both see a $100 bill on the ground. The student starts to bend to pick it up, and the professor says, No, don't bother. If it were really a $100 bill, it wouldn't be there. The Sticker Price The practical application of rule number one investing is this. Buy $1 of value for 50 cents. This is possible because sometimes the value of a business we want to buy is not equal to the price it's selling for. It is critical to our job of buying businesses that we understand this. Price is what the market is getting for the business today. Value is what it's worth. Recall what I said in Chapter 2. Sometimes the price of a thing is not always equal to its value. When you're in the market to buy a new car, for example, you should know what your potential new car is worth before you step into a dealership and ask about its price. Because rule number one investing is essentially just a shopping trip for something on sale, critical to rule number one investors is understanding that we must know what an item or business is worth. Let's take the car buying example further. While on Park Avenue in New York City, I saw a brand new Maserati Quattroporte in the dealer's window. That's a beautiful car. Seriously. So I went in and asked one of the sales reps what the sticker price was on the car. She told me $101,000 to $115,000, depending on the options. By then I was sitting in the driver's seat, playing with the buttons on the dash. I asked her, how much for this one? She told me it was a six-month wait that they were fetching somewhere between $120,000 and $145,000. I excused myself and escaped. Still curious, I went to eBay and found one on sale for only $145,000. The New York dealer I'd spoken to hadn't been kidding. The sticker price was $106,000. That first dealer and another on eBay wanted $145,000. Why? Because there was a big demand. Hey, 
Welcome to America. Some buyers are willing to pay that price because they have more money than they know what to do with. The money is there. They want the car. They pay the $145,000 even if the price is above the sticker by 40%. I don't pay sticker price for anything, so I'm not buying that car. I might even be in love with that Maserati, but I've got to take care of my money so my money will take care of me. That means not blowing it just because I can't wait a while. You and I both know that the over-sticker price isn't going to last long. Soon enough, that Maserati will be available to me at sticker and then, at some point, below sticker. We're going to buy businesses in a similar fashion. First, we're going to find a few businesses we love and that meet our criteria thus far. Then we're going to be very patient and wait until we get the chance to buy them below sticker price. Contrast that with the way your average mutual fund manager operates. He pays sticker or above sticker most of the time. He does it because it's not his money. He also does it because a part of him actually believed his professors in B school who taught him EMT, which says that everything always sells for sticker price. And he does it because it's his job to buy something with your money in some reasonable amount of time after you give it to him. If he doesn't buy anything for two or three years because he's waiting patiently for one of those moments when the markets go crazy and he can buy some great big companies at wonderful prices with those billions you all have given him, then you, the mutual fund investor, aren't going to be very happy. He's taken your money under his management for two years and given you a zero rate of return. This is unlikely to happen because your fund manager knows he's evaluated on his performance during the last year or so, not the past decade. So he's not about to take your money and leave it outside the market for two or three years. He's going to buy something with it right away, which is particularly easy for him if he took Professor Malkiel's course at Princeton, where he learned that the market always prices everything according to its value. To your fund manager, the secret to successful investing is knowing something about a company before anyone else, and if that is impossible, being comfortable that whatever price he's paying isn't out of line with the value he's getting, even if it seems absurd. Oh, and it did seem absurd from time to time in the late 1990s. A lot of fund managers were buying stocks as absurdly priced as that Maserati. Here's a great example. At the end of 1999, Yahoo was at a split-adjusted price of $118. That price could be the sticker price of Yahoo, only if the growth rate of the company exceeded 70% a year for the next 15 years. That kind of growth would have been amazing. But if Yahoo did grow that fast, it would, in 15 years, have been worth $1.5 trillion dollars significantly larger than Exxon will be at that time, and Exxon is the biggest company in the world. If you accepted that scenario, then you were counting on Yahoo's receiving in the year 2014 significantly more advertising revenue than Exxon gets from selling oil. If that couldn't happen, hint, hint, then the price your fund manager was paying for Yahoo was absurdly high. So high that it would take more than 20 years just to get your money back under almost any other scenario. At its highest trade, Yahoo went for $118.75 per share at the beginning of 2000. By late August of 2002, that same stock was selling for a mere $4.50. At that price, Yahoo was a steal if you understood the company, and I didn't. And since then... It's up about 900%. Yahoo was not alone in the insanity. If your fund manager bought Coke in 1998 at $85 per share, and if Coke kept growing at the rate it had been growing for years, it would take you until after the year 2025 just to break even. More than 25 years of zero return. What were the institutional fund managers thinking?
They were thinking that although the prices of these companies were completely insane, or as Alan Greenspan put it, irrationally exuberant, they were forced to buy them by you. By 1998, investors were rapidly moving their money out of conservative mutual funds and into the funds that were producing 20 to 30 percent rates of return. Fund managers, in addition to being smart people, have a honed survival instinct. They get a significant portion of their income by attracting more investors. If you and your investor brethren take your money away, their income goes down. In addition, if their fund rate of return stays significantly below other funds, they get fired. So what were they thinking? They were thinking it's better to continue working and receive that nice fat $1 million per year income for one or two more years, even at the risk of losing all your money, than to get fired today because you took your money and went to some other fund manager who would be more aggressive with it. That's what they were thinking then. And that's what they are still thinking now. Today, right now, your fund manager is trying to find a stock that will go up a lot within the next few weeks, so his overall rate of return will look great compared to his peers and the S&P 500. Do you really think he's looking farther down the line than that? Wake up and smell the coffee, guys. Here's my point. We're going to have to admit that sometimes the market prices stocks, as Malkiel puts it, crazy. Sometimes this crazy refers to very high prices, and sometimes this crazy refers to very low prices. Guess which kind of crazy we're interested in. Actually, as business buyers, we're interested in both kinds of crazy. We're going to use these regular market fluctuations as opportunities to both buy and sell. We load up the truck when prices drop significantly below sticker price, and we sell the truckload when prices go above the sticker price. The single most important determinant of the money we get in the future is the price we pay today. Is the price at the sticker, above the sticker, or below the sticker? We can figure out what the sticker price is, but we can't control the price being charged for the business. That's up to our partner, Mr. Market. Meet Mr. Market The idea that the market is our partner came from Ben Graham, and like many of Graham's insights about investing, this concept is immediately obvious and profound, at least it should be. Mr. Market is an incredibly agreeable partner. At any time, he's willing to make a deal happen. If we want to buy a business, he'll sell it to us. If we want to sell a business, he'll buy it from us. Awesome! The catch? Mr. Market gets to name the price. This catch would give us no particular advantage in making great investments if it weren't for the fact that Mr. Market is bipolar. Our partner goes through gigantic mood swings from the highest euphoria to the lowest depression. Most of the time, Mr. Market is taking his meds, and on most days, he's pretty lucid and rational about the prices he sells and buys at. That means most of the time, the price of a business is pretty close to its value. But sometimes, he can get so insanely optimistic that he prices everything insanely high. On other days, Mr. Market can get so depressed that, unlike Annie, he's convinced the sun will not come up tomorrow. On those days, he feels there's never going to be a good day again for any of these businesses, and he prices them so low that it's as if he's giving them no value at all. Crazy or not, his mood that day sets the prices. Obviously, even if it's not very fair to take advantage of this massive emotional handicap, we prefer to buy from Mr. Market when he's severely depressed, and we want to sell to Mr. Market when he's irrationally exuberant. It's kind of a shame to take advantage of someone who's emotionally unbalanced, but then again, he doesn't seem to mind. He's been bipolar for so long that he just thinks it's normal. 
he honestly doesn't think he's mispricing anything. Even if one day the price is $100 per share, and just a few months later, it's $10 per share. And if you ask the professors who study Mr. Market, they'll tell you the guy is fine. They'll tell you that his behavior is completely rational, and give you all kinds of reasons why the price of that company was rationally $100, and then rationally $10. I guess when the keepers of the loony bin are loony, everybody is normal. Let's go back to the Maserati. If our Maserati dealer was also a manic depressive, he might price the car one month at $145,000 and a year later at $50,000. If we pay $145,000 and then sell the car a few weeks later, we're going to lose money. But if we could get that same car for $50,000... Even if we aren't professional car dealers, we're sure to make money, even if we have to sell it tomorrow. See what a huge difference price makes? A big part of the secret of getting rich buying businesses is knowing what they're worth, and, equally important, what they're not worth. By knowing that, one, price is not value, and, two, Mr. Market is going to price stocks crazy from time to time, we know that if we can properly value every business we are interested in buying, all we have to do is be patient and wait for Mr. Market to bring it to us at the right price. The price we're making money is certain. Some investors think that great companies don't go on sale, and they're usually right. But usually right isn't the same as always right. Here are a few recent examples of mistakes Mr. Market made in pricing great businesses. Don't worry about how I arrived at these sticker prices, since I'll soon be showing you, step by step, how to calculate these easily on any company. In 2000, Apollo, APOL. The big five were consistent and looking great. Sales growing at 35%, EPS growing at 35%, equity growing at 36%, cash growing at 30%, ROIC 18%, historical growth 35%, analysts estimating 25%. Assuming the analysts were correct, sticker conservatively at $40. Mr. Market couldn't believe his own analysts, I guess. Mr. Market's price? $10. By May 2005, Mr. Market's price, $79. Five-year compounded return is 52% per year. In 2003, Walgreens, WAG. Sales growing at 15%, EPS growing at 17%, equity growing at 15%, cash growing at 50%, all consistent. ROIC, 15%. Assuming the analysts were correct about its future growth, a sticker of $44. Available from Mr. Market at $27. Why? Scared away from retail by recession. May 2005 price, $45. Or 29% compounded for two years. In 2000, Bed, Bath & Beyond. BBBY. Sales, EPS, equity, and cash flow all growing at 25%. ROIC at 19%. Sticker, $40. Mr. Market dumping it for $12. Why? Market meltdown started and took BBBY with it. May 2005 price, $40. Compounded ROI for five years, 27%. In 2000, Starbucks, SBUX. Sales, EPS, equity, and cash flow growing at 24%. ROIC at 10%. Assuming the analysts were correct about its future growth, sticker, $60. Mr. Market, selling it for $14. May 2005 price, $56, or 32% compounded ROI for five years. In 2001, Dell, D-E-L-L. -L. 
sales, EPS, equity, and cash flow growing at 35%. ROIC, 40%. Assuming the analysts were correct about its future growth, sticker, $70. Mr. Market panics out of tech stocks. All of them. Selling Dell for $20. Go figure. May 2005 price, $40, or four years compounded at 19%. In 2000, Toll Brothers, T-O-L, a home-building company. Sales, EPS, equity, and cash flow growing at 18%. ROIC at 12%. Assuming the analysts were correct about its future growth, sticker, $25. Mr. Market was selling real estate cheap, $9. May 2005 price, $90. Compounded five-year ROI, 58% per year. Collectively, the average return in 2005 on these was 30% per year. If you invested $10,000 into this basket of stocks in the year 2000, your basket was worth $37,000 in 2005. Meanwhile, the S&P averaged minus 2%, and the same $10,000 invested in a broad market fund was worth $9,000. In 15 years, it's possible that the $37,000 will be worth $2 million at this rate, while the $10,000 invested in the mutual fund is going to be worth Margin of safety. The secret to making a fantastic rate of return on our business buying is to be sure we're getting a dollar of value for only 50 cents. First, we determine the value, the sticker price. Then, we determine the margin of safety price, the MOS, which is half of sticker. If we've done a good job of determining the sticker, we're going to make a lot of money. If we've done a bad job, we have an MOS and we're going to get out of there without violating rule number one. Cool. Because we're not geniuses and we're not perfect, it's incredibly important to get an MOS on every business we buy, no matter what kind of business it is. If I don't get an MOS price, I don't buy. Come on! If a genius like Buffett insists on an MOS, don't you think we should too? These three critical words, margin of safety, are going to make you millions of dollars when you do it right. And they'll keep you from losing money when things don't go as planned. Reminder. Getting a margin of safety price on any business is just one step in the process of making successful rule number one investment decisions. Remember, you have to do an entire analysis through the four M's before taking the leap and buying any business. You'll violate rule number one if you simply seek MOS prices on businesses that have no meaning to you, that don't have a moat with great big five numbers, or that don't have strong management. Let's return to the year 2000 and check out a few stocks. If the sticker price for Harley was $50 in 2000, the MOS price was $25. If you got that price, you should have loaded up the truck with Harley. If the sticker price for General Motors was $33, the MOS price for GM was $17. That's a long way from the $77 it was selling for in 2000, but a lot closer to the $26 that it was at in 2005. In 2000, Dell's sticker was $40, its MOS price was $20, and it was selling for $40, so we weren't buying. Not that the price wasn't fair. It was actually priced pretty close to its value, right? In a situation like that, a stock stays on our watch list because the price isn't cheap enough for us yet. We want certainty. The only way we're going to get it is to buy $1 for 50 cents. A year later, it was selling for $20. Perseverance pays off. Apollo had a sticker price of $40 with an MOS price of $20. Since Mr. Market was asking for $10, we got a pretty spectacular deal.
Note, to experienced investors who are wondering if this is value investing, my answer is no. This is rule number one investing. Here's why rule number one investing is different from value investing. Value investing is all about buying businesses no one wants. Mr. Buffett calls such a business a cigar butt business. The idea being there might be one more puff in it. We're not looking for a cigar butt business. We're looking for a Maserati business that has gone on sale. As I've said, we find a wonderful business, know what it's worth, and then just wait for Mr. Market to get emotional and hand it to us at an attractive price. It's called rule number one investing. Get used to it. MOS will not only make you money, it will keep you from losing it in a bubble. In 2000, JDS Uniphase, Oracle, Microsoft, Apple, Intel, and virtually every other Nasdaq stock that crashed were priced way over their sticker prices. Coke, Disney, and Gillette were also priced way over sticker. Telecom stocks priced way over sticker. Knowing the sticker and MOS price keeps you from buying businesses that are too expensive, and that, my friends, will save you a lot of grief. By now, you're probably clamoring to know how to determine the value, the sticker price of a business. We'll get to that, and then you'll be able to find your MOS price. Applying MOS to other investments. You can take the principle of MOS and apply it to all kinds of investing. If you are a rule number one real estate investor, you aren't buying real estate in adherence to the greater fool theory of real estate speculation, where you hope a greater fool will come along in a year or two who'll pay more than you paid. You're buying real estate as a business, and you're doing it with a big MOS. Just because I ranted about real estate investments in the first chapter, as compared with buying businesses, doesn't mean you can't invest in real estate. Most of us, at some point, buy property, and you can apply rule number one elements to that endeavor to maximize your return. In fact, seeing how you can get an MOS price in the real estate world can crystallize the concept. For example, I once bought 55 acres of raw land from a farmer in Iowa. The land was on the edge of a small, growing town, but it wasn't included in the town limits, and it didn't have a sewer hookup. I got the land for five thousand dollars per acre, about two times the going price of farmland, but one fifth the value of similar land across the street that was subdivided and hooked up to the city sewer and water. I brought in the water and sewer from a mile away, because they wouldn't let me just hook up across the street. Put in a road. Subdivided the 55 acres into one to three acre parcels, and then, with major help from friends in the real estate business, sold off the whole thing in small pieces at an average price of twenty-five thousand dollars per acre. This audiobook has been broken into multiple parts to make the download faster. You have reached the end of a part, but not the end of the complete audiobook. So please check your library for the next part of this audio book. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.